Welcome to the IOTICS podcast, where we're talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension ours, a better place. We'll explore how they're bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges today. I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Caroline Field. She's a partner at PA Consulting, leading on national resilience. Obviously, in our current climate, national resilience is one of those big topic situations, but Caroline does an amazing job of tying together the national resilience, the systems of systems approach, and the the smaller human, both us as people, as leaders, as communities, as companies, and what we can do to be more intentional, to flourish not only in moments of crisis, but all the time, so that cooperatively, we can be better together. I hope you enjoy it. Caroline, thank you so much for being with us here today. You are um, a partner who is the lead on national resilience at PA Consulting. National resilience. I, I mean, it feels like it should intuitively uh, be understood, but what what do we mean by national resilience? Well, it means about kind of protecting our strategic aims as a nation. And so being able to kind of deliver on, you know, our economy, our society, um, making sure, you know, it links to kind of environment. So it's all of those things that we want to deliver. Resilience is there to kind of protect and enable that. And so you think about all the crises we've had over the past few years. We've had, um, you know, different shocks and stresses. So shocks being those big events like COVID, pandemic. We've had we have the Ukraine crisis and the impact that has on our sort of global supply chains, which we've seen particularly with our defence supply chains, for example. And so it's about being able to withstand and protect our interests when kind of those events happen. But also it's a strategic enabler, really kind of um, allowing us to thrive during uncertainty and change. I think that's a really important part of it because we seem to be sort of living through a permacrisis at the moment with one thing after another. Yeah, I... And um, it's really interesting you mentioned the permacrisis bit mm. because that kind of differentiation that might have existed a while ago between a shock as a kind of short-term piece and a stress as a more longitudinal aspect. Yeah. And actually, over the past five or six years or so, the distinction between those two. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be a permanent shock and then you have those underlying stresses as well in society such as, you know, cost of living or, you know, health, um, uh, global health. Uh, and so those things make those crises worse. You think about, you know, just the underlying health issues in the UK and the NHS, you know, make responding to a pandemic more difficult. And so we need to understand those interactions. And the fact now that we're just seeing one after another we need to kind of have a different approach now and learn lessons from, you know, the last few years. What do we need to do differently? And the um, UK government, uh, through the integrated review, set the need for uh, a national resilience strategy. And the UK government's resilience framework was issued at the end of last year. And that's very ambitious sort of learning lessons from the last few years and very much moving us from a reactive to a proactive stance and thinking about it as being a very much an integrated whole whole society, whole system approach to resilience, which is what we need because 
you know, resilience sort of fails at those gaps between silos. And unfortunately, we all like to work in silos. And so that's really the challenge is sort of joining up the dots across across the country in terms of, you know, our infrastructure systems, our communities, our businesses. Uh, and so that's really uh, the strategy for the next sort of 10, 15 years is really kind of working on that sort of integration uh, and whole system approach. It strikes me that this requires, as you've said, the whole system approach requires a different style of thinking, the kind of uh, what classically would be termed systems thinking. What is it about the world today that is enabling that or is driving that? The sort of why now? What, mm. I mean, it, yes, we're in a state of permacrisis, but what, mm. what is it now that has, that has enabled us to have this national resilience strategy, to have an approach, to be thinking about integration in new ways yeah well I think it's because we can sort of I think well I think one of the things is we need to be able to kind of measure the impact that this is having on us and our strategic uh, objectives so that's that's one thing the kind of whole measuring resilience and being able to value resilience and it not just being for uh, big events it kind of um, delivering benefits in sort of downtime so thinking about things like you know if you're going to go and build a big flood barrier let's make it a green uh, flood barrier so that it can be a beautiful park and, and thinking about trying to link together sort of sustainability resilience equity and coming up with those types of solutions that kind of tick off more than one thing I think because of our global interconnectedness we're going to be disrupted by all sorts of things around the globe. And we've seen that with Ukraine and the impact on food and munitions. And really, when you think about climate change, that's our, you know, our big slow moving crisis, which we really um, are not putting the same amount of effort into as we did for COVID, for example, which, you know, had a big impact, but is potentially a much less impact than climate change. But because it's slow moving, we don't really perceive the threat so much. And you think about, you know, just the, the the changing climate risk and, you know, water scarcity, and that's going to, you know, prompt global potentially mass migration, disrupt supply chains. And so we need to be, you know, understand those sort of vulnerabilities within our systems and be able to kind of put in place measures to kind of mitigate and improve that. And I think we've sort of really been caught short on some of the things that have happened over the last few years and it's sort of I'm seeing businesses as well as the government look to kind of um, the need to kind of change their stance from very sort of a reactive approach to much more strategic approach to resilience. I think it's really interesting talking about the strategic piece but also the sort of public or citizen awareness. I mean uh, it seems to me that we're very aware when things have gone wrong and when there is a breakdown of service or infrastructure or provision. But it's often harder to see the value in the preventative measures or the strategic approaches uh, that might happen. I mean, yeah. you know, classically, the question about development aid to prevent mass migration by enabling the provision of water in people's home countries or, or making water more resilient. How are we starting to articulate value or are we articulating value to people in the kind of preparation and strategy rather than the intervention? Well, we absolutely should be doing that. And that's definitely a central part, I think, of the um, national resilience framework. However, I think the, the approach tends to traditionally sort of focus on risks and trying to get people to understand risks. And I think people are not very good at <laughs> understanding risks. So I think you have to kind of understand what motivates people in their communities and make it real for them. 
you know, people are, are, are pretty smart, but equally a lot of them are having issues with, you know, cost, you know, just paying paying their bills. And so why should they be worrying about a flood that may or may not happen? And so I think it's being able to talk to resilience as that broader agenda that kind of addresses those stresses as well as shocks and kind of pulls those pieces together. And certainly I'm seeing a move in that direction to kind of link together uh, resilience not just for emergencies but for resilience for kind of you know everyday improvements so that when emergencies happen it's not such a bad impact but that takes a whole change in mindset and sort of culture to move in that direction and we're seeing with the DLUC the Department for Leveling Up Housing has an, adi- an initiative with the local resilience forums which are responsible for our resilience across the UK where they're moving from um, a kind of more emergency planning approach to a more societal resilience building. And they're they're looking to pilot that programme at the moment and looking to put a chief resilience officer in post to kind of oversee both the emergency response as well as that sort of strategic societal resilience building. But what needs to happen then is really enabling and linking up with Uh, the voluntary sector and the community in terms of asking the community what they need, you know, bridging that gap between the kind of top down and the bottom up. So there's lots of amazing work going on in communities across the UK. We were up in Rochdale uh, a couple of months ago and they're just some amazing examples of community initiatives that, you know, leaders within that community are just passionate about and are kind of just getting on with. And really what what we need to do is kind of link into that, provide the scaffolding and framework to enable that uh, and link it into the kind of whole resilience agenda. And I think that's really the way to kind of do it in terms of building community resilience. Hopefully that's what will will come out of this programme, but we'll see. You mentioned there about passion and one of the things I've I've seen you write about is the intentionality, that's a word, I'm going to say it is, the the intentionality... (laughs) necessary behind strategy so what's the thing that you're aiming for and the purpose and and intentionally structuring responding providing the scaffolding it feels to me that this is quite a seismic shift in focusing on the outcome rather than the process or steps that you might be putting in place is Um, that fair yeah no I think that's a really good observation and I think what we've learned from the events we've seen is that We all coalesce behind a a common purpose and I think we get the best out of ourselves when we know our kind of role in delivering on that. When we look at, for example, resilient culture and we measure that alignment behind that common purpose and feeling empowered to kind of know your role in delivering on that is really important. And I know that uh, there was an article, I think, from uh, Tesco, and I was was talking to actually the head of uh, resilience at Tesco after COVID, because you remember how amazing they were in terms of um, getting that home deliveries kind of off the ground. And, um, you know, they employed, I think, an extra 40,000 people within a a few weeks. It was just quite phenomenal. It was like, well, how did you manage that? That was incredibly agile and adaptive. What what was it? And and one of those key factors was alignment of purpose behind this really strong goal of like, well, we need to protect our staff, we need to service our customers, and everyone was very focused. And I think it's trying to harness that type of kind of focus and purpose in every day as opposed to just during emergencies. And I think that's that's the sort of challenge. 
it's fascinating to me the use of the Tesco example mm. because one of the things that I saw in the prioritization um, in that same supply chain was Acado stopped delivering bottled water uh, during the pandemic in their home delivery because when looking at the totality of the system, it's too bulky, it's too heavy for too small a, a, a return, basically, and not a financial return, but as in mm. it's very easy to fill up a delivery vehicle with just bottled water, and that means you can only service two or three people because they're buying mm. X amount. Mm. Um, so they just banned it. And as a result, they were able to do more deliveries to more people more quickly because they'd prioritized and shifted. And it wasn't a permanent shift, and it wasn't a you can never have this again. It was in this period of stress, we're going to move these levers. Yeah to maximise our capability and yeah. maximise our delivery. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And well, it's an example of systems thinking, but it's also an example of how sometimes I think some of our bureaucratic barriers kind of stop things, stop change or stop that agility to adapt. And I think, you know, during a crisis, we tend to just, everything goes out the window and we just, just, just do what we need to do. And so I think that should be a bit of a lesson in some ways of kind of getting that balance right between having, because you do need a strong kind of structure, a robustness of your structure in order to kind of that foundation for resilience. But you, you don't want to kind of quell the ability to be agile and adapt because that's kind of what puts you out of business. Uh, and I'm just reminded of um, thinking about some companies that have done that. If you, This is going to show my age now, but uh, I was thinking about Netflix and Blockbuster. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of classic <laughs> one, isn't it? Just like Blockbuster, such a massive organisation with stores, you know, around the globe. And then Netflix comes in and, you know, starts doing things online and foresees that kind of digital revolution, which, which Blockbuster didn't at all. And so... You know, it's not just about, you know, those specific shock events. It's about, you know, that foresight of kind of changing technologies, for example. Like, how is that going to impact your business? Because those things are opportunities if you get to them quick enough or they're, uh, they're going to finish you off if you don't. And so I think thinking about that in terms of resilience is, re is really important too. That's a really interesting example. Um, <laughs> and, and it's interesting for me because it isn't, um, it is possible to tell that story in a kind of, uh, you were surprised by a thing, but Netflix tried to sell themselves to Blockbuster. I mean, they, as in, they took they took the business and said, yeah. for 50, I think it was fifty million dollars, you can buy what we've got. So it wasn't that Blockbuster were unaware; <laughs> no, it was that they lacked that... the leadership and that point around leadership. You know, if you're if you're focusing on strategy, if you're focusing on purpose, you mentioned the community leaders at mm. grassroots level. Sorry, with their passion. Mm. What does leadership in a resilient world look like? Mm. You're fantastic to hear, and I have to confess yeah. my ignorance. I was unaware there were chief resilience officers <laughs> uh, out in the world, although it makes yeah. a lot of sense. So yeah. what does resilience in leadership look like and mean? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked me that. I've just actually got accredited to deliver a resilient leaders course, which has been absolutely fascinating. And this, I'll just give a shout out to resilience leaders elements who are amazing. They've got data from about 20 years on kind of what makes a resilient leader that they've been looking at. And so they have a really nice model, which we're now kind of putting into our program around resilience culture. And so essentially, um, there are sort of, I suppose, four, four key areas. One is we, we talk often about situational awareness, so kind of being aware. And that's, you know, classic, you know, blockbuster weren't really that aware or didn't really take that awareness into any decision making. And so being aware of yourself as a leader. So it's partly about who you are as a leader 
in terms of your own personal resilience, but then what you do as a leader. And so the awareness is about yourself, the environment and your kind of team. Um, there's a, a large piece around your clarity of direction. So going back to the whole purpose, so kind of having that clear purpose, but getting that unity of direction behind you and having that determination to kind of keep going when you're challenged. I mean, that's a really obviously important part, part of resilience. And then uh, we talked a bit about decision making. So resilient decision making. So being able to, you know, get the information you need to make uh, decisions so kind of robust decision making but also having that versatility to change the pace of your decision making depending on the what's going on around you um, but also being creative and, and resourceful so that you can actually find those alternate ways to achieve your objective when you know things obstacles get in your your way and then lastly and I think this is that this is about who you are so I think being that sort of authentic leader uh, that serving leader and being very intentional like we talked about earlier about what you want to do and it's really important that that leader I think can think in systems as well so being able to understand those interconnectivities and dependencies within systems and have that ability to kind of you know uh, solve complex problems and being able to empower people to self-lead I mean that's what this is ultimately about is being able to empower others to feel like they can kind of step up and know their role uh, in terms of resilience and in terms of driving the organization or the community forward. I love it. And there's a lot there um, <laughs> that, that I, wa I want to dig into yeah. more. One of them was the interdependencies. Mm. And I remember during the pandemic talking to a construction company who had built resilience in, in air quotes, um, to their supply chain by having multiple suppliers of, I, I'm going to say chipboard. It might have been MDF. I'm not my area. Apologies to anyone mm. listening. Um, but but had multiple suppliers. Then during the pandemic, it became apparent that actually all of them were working from the same yeah. tier two supplier, who I think was based in France. And as a result, when they closed, that was it. It didn't matter that you had yeah. five people's phone numbers and and their stock. The stock just disappeared, and that whole piece of, of the supply chain was broken. Mm. So the ability to see the interdependencies one or two stops further on yep. seems to me a, a key Absolutely. talent or skill. Absolutely. And this is where we go back to yeah, the systems thinking and the ecosystem. So understanding, you know, what you're relying on. And like you say, those those tiers, you know, we you had a massive shortage of pasta. Do you remember that yeah. as well? Because like, all pasta comes from this particular location in Italy. And it's like, oh, OK. And I think um, a lot of the supply chains, um, particularly on the food side, are sort of just in time. And I think we need to move from that just in time to just in case. Um, so there's sort of a shift there in terms of that thinking. But like you said, we need to be able to understand uh, where those critical dependencies are in the system, what that vulnerability is, and then come up with a strategy to obviously work around that. And we've seen really good examples of that. Um, I'm reminded of, I think it was Toyota, Back in, I think it was back in the 90s, they had a fire at one of their suppliers' plants, which basically shut down their production for a couple... Well, they thought it was going to shut down their production for a couple of weeks. And because they um, developed such deep relationships within their kind of ecosystem, they all kind of rallied round to kind of set up a new, in a new facility within two days. And it was just due to that whole kind of partnership and it, them being in it together. And I think very often sort of supply chain relationships can be quite transactional 
And so I think we need to build those kind of partnerships better and, and work work together in that kind of more collaborative way because we're, we are all in it together and we, you know, we're all connected, no matter, you know, and you're going to find out where you're not or where there's a gap <laughs> when something happens or, or, you know. So I think, you know, that's such a good lesson, I think, uh, around that sort of collaborative partnership sort of model. And I find that point around collaboration and cooperation and how you bring ecosystems together and indeed the fact that there is an ecosystem this mm. isn't this isn't a bi-directional no. transaction there's an ecosystem of players there and one of the things you mentioned on the leadership was around decision making mm. and and understanding what you're looking at and it seems to me that and you said right at the start about we are used to working in silos mm. we are comfortable working in silos yeah. isn't a big barrier to delivering that understanding and ability to make decisions the siloing of the information fundamentally yeah no absolutely i think that's one of our biggest challenges because in order to be able to um be resilient we need to understand you know our system that from end to end be able to map that out be able to understand um the capability and capacity of those systems and what measures have been put in place to kind of mitigate certain risks or to adapt to different scenarios and often, you know, we don't share that information because either we're worried about, you know, um, sharing personal data or we're worried about, you know, proprietary information. And so I think that's a massive barrier that needs to be overcome because in order to be able to understand national resilience, we need to be able to understand each of those parts of the ecosystem to be able to see where, where the gaps are. And, and obviously some people don't, want to show that vulnerability as well. I mean, as, I mean, there's lots of reasons people don't want to share information, but that's going to be, you know, I think that's quite a big hurdle that needs to be overcome. And I'm struck that it probably doesn't need to be everything all at once to everyone in order to, you know, that there is both a temporal element. So I might share more information in times of crises and, and, and or moments of stress, mm. uh, but also actually being able to explore what is it that we do need from, you know, I don't need to know every cup of coffee you had today and every journey you're going on, but something about your buying patterns or lifestyle or the things that are important right. and so on, which then brings us back. And a word I've seen a lot in your writings is balance. Mm. If you're working with purpose, then mm. finding balance between things. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's right. So I think being able to share the, the right information when it's needed is going to be really important. And obviously, you know, we were seeing sort of digital twins um, kind of spring up. And I think that in terms of resilience, I think sort of data and technology is an enabler of that. And we need to get that right. We we need to not rely too much on technology <laughs> to the point that we're <laughs> introducing more vulnerabilities. Uh, like we don't know how to do anything by hand anymore because our systems do it. But I think, you know, being able to share data in a secure way when it's needed is, is going to be really important. And I know IOTIC's uh, obviously uh, at forefront of that and linking that into sort of digital twins that we have so that they are useful and they're collecting all the information that, that we have. You know, uh, I mean, as part of our uh, PA, we obviously look at sort of critical systems and we look at kind of risk to critical systems. And it's, you know, at the moment, a lot of that information is in different places. And so just being able to sort of overlay, you know, our, you know, whether it's our transport system or, or whatever with the risk that it faces and the, and the capacity so that we've got that information to then be able to prioritise. 
And then where I see this going, I get quite excited about because, you know, harnessing that technology to kind of help us learn and improve. And, you know, we're doing some work on quantum computing. Don't ask me too much about that. But, <laughs> um, but you know, harnessing that power to kind of optimise systems to make them, you know, resilient, sustainable. Like what's the optimum in terms of resilience, sustainability and an equity or whatever else we want to kind of put in there. What's the best, you know, uh, way of achieving that across a system? And then once you've sort of linked that to real-time data, you can start thinking about, okay, well, this is how, or, you know, a, a warning about, oh, well, there's a flood coming. What might this do to the system? Or, oh, this, this rose down. How is that affecting the performance of the system? What do we need to do to get this up and running as quick as possible? And then, the, you know, your digital twin can start learning that and saying, well, actually, the optimum way to respond or recover is this based on what I've learned. So I can kind of see that this could be really powerful in terms of resilience. And I think one of the things that I'm hearing, especially on the excitement, because I, I completely see the direction of travel, mm. is that it is the value aspect. You know, it's not mm. it's not just mitigation of risk. It's it's increase of value. And, it, yeah. and in fact, you mentioned right, right, right near the beginning that risk is quite hard for people, especially if you've yeah. got immediate pressures, the yeah. risk of something that may or may not happen. But also it's quite hard to sell. You end up sounding a bit like a Cassandra, right? In terms yeah, of like, like, it's all doom. It's We're all like, doom, yeah, 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 quick, yeah. Um, yeah, totally agree. So how how can we start, and you mentioned creativity for, for re leaders in resilience, how can we start moving beyond risk mm. and, and talking to value and talking yeah. to the upside? Well, it's interesting you should ask that question. So I've been working on this uh, model uh, called the Six Dividends of Resilience. Um, so um, I'll just explain this. So it's two streams, essentially. So you obviously have benefit when you invest in resilience when when an event happens. So you have a, a, a kind of stream, which is when something happens, you're going to have value. But you also, in normal times, there is also a value associated with different initiatives that you put in place. So you have these two kind of columns, if you like. And then across on the rows, you have kind of essentially your reduction in um, your mitigating risk pieces that you were just talking about. That's a given when you're investing in resilience. You're yep. going to mitigate that, which will have a benefit if that risk materialise. But actually, often that will also have a benefit now. So, for example, if you go and invest in a piece of, you know, improving a piece of infrastructure, whether it's know, flood barrier or whatever... That's going to employ people, create jobs. That's right. going to have a productivity value. That might have a, a environmental value. That will have a community value, which we don't often measure, and we need to because we need to show that actually, it's not just about you know. Obviously, you're going to make a saving if you invest in reducing a risk up front because it you know you, you can show it's anywhere between you know ten and a hundred times or even more than that. But if you can actually show a value now, that helps people understand what's in it for them. And that, you know, it just is really important. And then the second one is being able to think about stresses. So not just tackling those shocks, but tackling everyday stresses, because that has a benefit when a disaster happens, because it, you know, it reduces the impact of that. But also, if you're tackling stresses like cost of living or health, then that has a positive impact now, right? So... Um, but being able to quantify that. And then lastly, the, the other bit that we work on when we're building resilience is adaptive capacity, that ability to adapt to change, that cultural kind of piece. 
um, that makes us more agile and aware. And it sort of touches on that kind of leadership and decision making. And there's obviously a clear benefit during a crisis being able to kind of, you know, be agile, but also day to day within the communities, it kind of talks to that sort of collaboration, talks to that leadership piece. And so there's a value that we can measure of doing that. And so that turns into kind of those six chunks I was I was talking about. And so I think, you know, that's what we need to do differently. And so the way that we always approach resilience is around, I mean, I'm an engineer by training, so I, I love measuring things. And that was the first thought I had when I started doing resilience consulting was like, well, I need to show why you should, you know, invest and like where's the most appropriate yep. place to invest because otherwise you're in danger of just, you know, like you say, boiling the ocean or just, you know, thinking that, oh, God, this is going to cost me so much money. It's like, well, no, there's a business case here to be had. You know, this is this is your value at risk, essentially, and this is the kind of costs of your intervention. And here are the, all the other benefits of actually doing this uh, against your kind of, you know, strategic objectives. So I think it's kind of putting it in those terms uh, which makes it easier to kind of understand. I am so excited uh, <laughs> by this model and the measure, and actually the measurement. I'm I'm not an engineer. I was I, I was a <laughs> filthy humanities student. Um, but but the measurement piece, because you often see it in pockets, yeah, and and individual experts. I'm, I mm. remember uh, five or six years ago talking to a company called Star Labs, who were mm. talking about why shouldn't you allow people to pave over their front gardens for extra car parking space. And there was, yeah, and it, it was like, well, we can show you the difference it makes yeah. in the ability of a city to absorb runoff water. Yep. And, you know, and yep. But also, uh, those gardens often have trees in them, so we can show you difference in air quality and emissions and removal of pollutants. And, yeah. and it was like, yeah, we, 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 from the satellite, they, obviously, Star Labs, yeah. from a satellite, like we can yeah. show you the difference between Oxford and Cambridge with different planning permission yeah. regulations and approaches and so on. Um, but it was like that was a but that was itself a siloed like great you can show me some numbers around particularly paving over front gardens but how do we do that at a systems level and how do you measure measure the things that aren't the cost of pouring uh, a meter of concrete and and in, i know there's been work by neil thompson and others about how do you quantify the natural environment how do you quantify the social benefit mm -hmm. of being able to give people on the stress level, I can mm. completely see, you know, mm. we see it a lot in psychology and so on. Mm. If people's total stress levels are lower, their ability to respond to moments of shock yeah. is, hu is hugely yeah. increased. Absolutely. Whereas if you are at your limit in day-to-day -day life, yeah. then, and then there's a shock. So there is nowhere to go. Yeah. So how are we beginning to measure those things? And, mm. and I mean, it seems incredibly difficult. Right. It, 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 well, it's, it's a little bit difficult. Um, so I suppose it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative metrics initially. Um, but we've got some great economists that can turn the, all of those things into real numbers, uh, which is really helpful. But the way that I, I go about measuring resilience is by thinking about the sort of fundamentals of resilience, the characteristics of thinking about, you know, what, what makes up. Uh, so it's to say we've got a specific... Um, shock or stress that we want to kind of, you know, protect ourselves from. Okay, what what are those robustness? How robust are we? How redundant are we? Um, what fail-safe measures we put in place? How well can we respond, recover or learn? So kind of looking at that, you know, measuring the capacity in those terms um, allows me to... Uh, and then we also have a model around um, adaptive capacity, like how adaptive you are as a 
uh, whether it's an organisation or a community, so that we can kind of um, look at that and look at that overall. Well, how much will that contribute to reducing potential risks, but also adding value? And so um, we've done this uh, on a number of across a number of areas. One, actually, I'm reminded of a few years ago on urban uh, resilience, being able to yeah quantify not just the reduction. So, for example, we, we looked at reduction in economic loss, reduction in loss of lives, but then increase in productivity by investing in the different sort of um, resilient strategies that we put together. I think being able to put, you know, turn those sort of metrics, qualitative and quantitative, into some hard numbers at the end of the day is what, you know, is what governments need. So, for example, our own treasury... Uh, won't invest in resilience unless you can show them a business case to do that. And so being able to, you know, take a model such as the six dividends model and put that into kind of concrete terms is really, you know, is what needs to be done. And that's, you know, what we're looking to do essentially uh, in support of the of the resilience framework. And I, I think tying that to productivity is mm. really interesting because mm. I, and I, I'm struck by, the kind of echoes through history that mm. that we saw with the uh, Cadbury's family mm. uh, in the north um, west of England and uh, Friedrichshafen where there were Zeppelins that there was a kind of I had never thought about it as a resilience uh, conversation but yeah. the kind of well what do I need to be a productive manufacturer yeah. well I need an educated workforce well I'll build some schools and people mm. need somewhere to live and and they need good health care and yeah. and and all of all of these pieces come together so that there was resilience in the system and you can get people through it and, and so on. It's not a, a one in, one out, but it's building a resilient and robust system yep. that then supported a productivity output. Absolutely. I mean, um, I think this is sort of a common misconception around resilience. I think traditionally people think about it as either the ability to respond or recover. But actually, it's it's more than that. It's that, you know, it's that ability to be prepared uh, for disruption, but also to be able to adapt to things we don't know about, but also to be able to thrive in that sort of changing environment. And I think, and and, and very often that's a conversation I have with clients um, because they might traditionally think about you know emergency response or business continuity, and not think about that strategic side or the kind of enabling better performance as well as being able to weather kind of disruptions and so being able to show that business case of well actually you know being resilient also makes you more productive and we've shown that greater adaptive capacity uh, leads to increased productivity because you're more agile and nimble and can spot opportunities as well as threats I mean that's you know why Netflix was you know (laughs) did so well because they were they had adaptive capacity which we can measure and say well actually there's a measurable tangible benefit here and and that for me really uh i mean this is blowing my mind frankly but like that that loop back on the adaptive Mm. capacity Mm. you know so why why is it so topical now Mm. because we've had this seemingly insane five years (laughs) uh which of stresses and Mm. shocks Mm -hmm. and in different spheres of life you know it's not um you know we have been through some uh, global uh, conflicts and so on, but but where it was healthcare and and conflict and supply chain yep. and uh, infrastructure and housing and yeah, in in lots of different ways, 
But the adaptive capacity piece that if you were sat down in 2018 going, what's my five-year plan? How's my business going to respond? How am I built to cope with the pressures? I mean, if you were able to predict what was doing and had the plan in place to cope with it on a, on a more rigid basis, then I want you picking my lottery numbers because, mm. I mean, I, I don't think any of us saw. No. But having the adaptive capacity to cope with that and the next five years, I don't, mm. I don't think anyone's thinking that we're going to get in the short term a more stable calm sort of all right well let's make a plan in 2023 that will take us through to 2030 and we'll know all the parameters that we're working with that's right no i think you've hit on the key issue there i mean we can do all the planning you know we, and we want to we still need to plan we need to be you know thinking up these scenarios of kind of am i ready do i understand where my vulnerabilities are let's get myself in the best position but like you say even the the organizations that you might consider the most resilient could not have predicted the scale of that pandemic and the fact that they had to send all of their employees globally home and so that really did draw on all of our adaptive capacity you know so we had to adapt overnight to working from home and so that was a massive shift and then just going in terms thinking in terms of the benefits we we often talk about you know when we um, one of the other really important parts of resilience is being able to kind of learn and improve and bounce forward after disaster not go back to where you were you want to actually have that leap forward and I think this is a good example of kind of hybrid working. So kind of we we took that, you know, that change happened more quickly because it had to. But actually, let's keep the positive parts of that because that's actually enabled a different way of working. And I think, um, you know, we're still kind of figuring out what, what works best. But certainly, I think going back to the old, old way is not necessarily the right, right thing. So I think that's that's a really good or important point about resilience is being able to kind of bounce forward and learn from it, which I think we don't do enough of. And I'm thinking about the scale here, because adaptive capacity in particular mm. seems to be something that makes sense at all levels. I mean, mm. in terms of yeah. individuals, small companies, yeah. monoliths. And I, I know that the defence sector and the MOD have done some of that uh, future casting on scenarios yeah. and so on, not as future predictions, but okay. in terms of these are the variant stresses that might happen and, and what what yeah. what do we need to be able to adapt to? But for anyone listening, what are the kind of steps? How do you begin on this journey? Because it it seems both clear and candidly a little daunting to try and try and try and yeah. think about a systems of systems problem. Yeah. So where where do we begin? I mean, how, yeah. do, how do you start on the journey? Yeah, well, I I, I like to just have like a, a several step approach, so sort of just break it down because I think it is. It is, like you say, daunting and just trying to think about, oh, my God, that's just so too much to think about. And I like thinking, I like systems and drawing out systems. There's some of us that like doing that kind of thing. But so we often talk about um, resilience for what, to what, of what, for whom. And then I usually go, so what? Because I like saying that. <laughs> so the for what is the purpose. So like, OK, let's just understand what, what value are we protecting? What's our purpose that, you know, wh- why do we need to be resilient? What's it for? Um, the next question is resilience of what? What's the system that kind of delivers that value? So being able to understand and sort of map that out. And then understanding, well, resilience to what? What, what are the particular shocks and stresses or trends that are coming at us? So being able to kind of quantify that. Um, and then the resilience for whom's an interesting one, particularly at national scale, because, you know, there are some winners and some losers in terms of, you know, 
it affects so we need to understand that kind of you know the equity piece in resilience as well and then the so what is okay well what are we gonna do about it what are those strategies that I talked about earlier that we can put in place you know I take a very sort of methodical I suppose approach to breaking it down into kind of chunks I mean if you're talking about people that's a whole you know that they're a whole different psychological system I'm not a psychologist um, but I think some of those you know the qualities of resilience still apply at that level of of a system as well and what I'm doing at the moment is looking at how do we link you know personal resilience or resilient leaders to organizational resilience and then how do we link organizational resilience to national resilience because it's all part of this bigger system and so being able to understand when we you know pull a lever you know within one part of the system what impact that has overall so that we can understand what are the what are the most important things to do that are going to have the most impact and that's why you need that kind of structure of being able to measure um, and understand those sort of interconnected parts. I think here in the UK we think that the government's just going to, you know, we don't need to worry about things because the government's going to fix it. So we don't need to take responsibility necessarily for our own resilience mm. um, because we're kind of used to that and we're used to kind of, you know, the NHS working. We, we think that, you know, if there's a flood, uh, you know, somebody's going to come and help us. Um, so I think what needs to change is that kind of mindset and we need to take ownership for our own resilience. I don't, we don't need to go too far. There needs to be a balance here. Um, and in Beirut, um, we saw that individuals were kind of digging in their own wells and getting their own generators because it wasn't provide. You know, yeah. it wasn't provided, and that's obviously too far in one direction. Um, but I think there's definitely an argument to be made about um, you know help enabling people to you know what what can you do within your own home to just you know improve your own resilience. You know. Um, and how can we incentivize that and make it affordable for everybody to do that? And also having that conversation about, you know, we are, you know, seeing more and more severe storms with uh, and frequency of those with climate change. Should we be expecting the same performance level? And I don't think we discuss that kind of performance, like what what's the expectation? It's like you are going to get flooded if there is, you know, if there's yep. a storm. Um, and that's actually going to cost this much. And we've seen, for example, in um, in Florida recently, they they can't get insurance for for hurricanes or you know, which is like <laughs> ridiculous. It's like uh, because it's now getting so frequent, and so we're you know, is that going in that direction? So what? How do we? You know, we need to be able to deal with that and have that conversation. And we can mitigate some of these things through policy, you know, don't build on a floodplain, you know, or don't, you know, just looking at, you know, there's there's some good common sense things we could actually do to, to help ourselves. But I think understanding your own personal kind of situation and what you, you know, what particularly you might be subject to and, you know, planning, whether it's, the, you know, when I lived in San Francisco, for example, I lived there for 12 years uh, in earthquakes um, risk, obviously. And we had a go bag and we had, you know, uh, food in our outdoor outdoor sheds. And that's obviously because I'm an earthquake engineer by training. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't really do that sort of thing here, do we? We don't worry about that. No, I, and I think that for me it's a little bit like the hybrid, not to trivialise it, but the hybrid working piece of mm. 
something happens, there is a very natural kind of how do we snap back to the way things were mm. rather than saying, okay, well, there, there might be an element of new normal here. So mm. now, now what's the social covenant? Now how do we work if this is the new normal, if this is what we choose, choose to undergo? Mm. I've seen you write about a national reserve force in, in the past and, and as, a, as part of the mm. national resilience strategy. Mm. And it really struck me that when you were saying about people expect Mm. And I remember conversations that the army were saying that yeah. they, they were being used as a kind of, yeah. okay, there's a problem with the ambulances. Well, the army will drive. There's a, there's yeah. a, you know, it, was all, it was always classically, if there was any problem with fires, then just, green goddesses yeah. would roll out. And it was like, well, we've got the army. It's like, well, I mean, but they have, they have their own purpose and job. And you know, yeah. they're not just sat around waiting to fill in for whatever, wherever, whenever. No, exactly. Uh, so, so that kind of how we look at these things and what we think of not just our roles but other people's mm. roles and other structures' roles mm. seems to me an important debate to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back to that sort of community resilience point. I mean, if you think back to during COVID where there were so many people put on furlough and, you know, were there and available to kind of help out their communities and actually we, we were the recipient of some of those amazing people. But the point here is being able to kind of engage that community of volunteers who want to do something and want to do something productive but that requires that coordination and that's sort of back to this chief resilience officer role is that being able to coordinate and provide the scaffolding to enable people and communities to volunteer to help build resilience in the downtimes we're not having a crisis um if that happens <laughs> um or you know in the new normal and so i think that is a really key point and whether it's a national reserve force or some other kind of you know central kind of coordinating function i think that is something that needs to be and maybe it's just devolved to the chief resilience officers of each of the local resilience forums but i think that is a really key key part that needs to be delivered and we've seen this work, right? I mean, as, as in from a self-organising, some, yeah. oh, some of yeah. the community response to COVID, yeah. people switching roles and, yeah. and doing things, volunteering, yeah. driving people to appointments that couldn't get mm. there, setting mm. up home deliveries. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's something innate and that we are yeah. supremely capable of. We are. We are, and we want to do it. And it's just we kind of need that sort of framework to work within so that we're doing. We're not all just turning up to do the same thing. We need to kind of you know, all be a bit more organised and a bit more joined up. So my husband's uh, midlife crisis career, as I like to refer to it, um, is brewing. So we opened a microbrewery uh, about six or seven years ago. And, you know, our, one of our primary customers are pubs. And so, as you remember, pubs all closed overnight. Yep. And so we were like, ah, oh, no, all our customers are closed. Um, so after freaking out for about 24 hours, we're like, OK, right, we need to kind of adapt to this. And because we're small, we, we can do that. And so we pivoted overnight to a direct-to-customer delivery service, so free delivery within 10 miles. And we just went out and and and, and delivered. But then we didn't have, like, a online sort of website where people could order and a kind person from Bath actually our local our local city reached out and said oh I you know do you want some help setting up a you know a, a website to be able to do that and we thought well, that'd be brilliant and they just you know did that for us because they were you know furloughed 
and it was just brilliant. And so we were able then to, you know, support our local community, keep them, you know, well lubricated during <laughs> during all the disaster. That's our that's our role <laughs> during disasters, um, which was, you know, I think a really good, you know, example of that of communities coming together and communities being able to adapt to those types of situations. Yeah, and and the different skills you need and the elements and the, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that cooperation at its best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely, and it's kind of like it happens during disasters, but it needs to happen all the time. Why can't we? You know, we need to kind of capture that and enable it uh, all the time, not just when a crisis happens. So I think that's one of the key points that I discuss a lot with clients actually in terms of oh yeah we're great during a disaster we put our capes on and we all come together and we're all kind of focused it's like okay well how do we actually bottle that and enable that during normal time business as usual how do we actually get that spirit and I think it's back to that purpose point isn't it around that common alignment and everybody fulfilling a specific you know role and knowing what they're doing and how they're contributing and we just need to, I think, really enable that kind of sense of community and achievement and purpose, but enable it in a really flexible way. So not put, you know, barriers of paperwork and, you know, structures in the way, which tend to disappear during a, a, a disaster. And so I think that that's, to me, that is really key to, you know, to national resilience is really harnessing that kind of collective spirit of cooperation through our communities. That for me is a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. You're very welcome. Fun. Thank you to Caroline Phil for a fantastic podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you got as much from it as I did. Thank you to our host today, Kennington Studios, the Snaffle podcast for the production. And if you'd like to know any more about Iotics or to listen to any of our previous episodes, go to iotics.com. Until next time, thank you.